Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. By many measures, Google is one of the most successful and innovative companies ever established. We know two-thirds of all online searches across the world today are performed on its site, and its stock performance since inception 15 years ago is amongst the greatest in the history of the American financial markets. Now, what makes Google even more remarkable is that its founders sought from the very beginning to create a company where the most talented people would want to work. And as validation that they succeeded, no organization has ever ranked number one on Fortune Magazine's best company to work for list more times. And that's not just true in America, it's true for global workplaces as well. And one reason that Google has been such a standout is because they've been uncommonly committed to identifying the leadership practices that really drive employee motivation, engagement, well-being, and of course, productivity. And that brings us to a study that they conducted a few years ago called Project Aristotle. The company asked its organizational psychologists to go in search of the answer to one very important question. And the question was, what makes the best teams? And as a refresher for some of you, and it'll be new to others, Google willingly devoted five years of work to the venture before famously concluding that five key dynamics characterize all high-performing teams. And of the five, the first four components were really straightforward and logical. Number one, they have clear goals. Two, they have dependable and supportive colleagues. Three, each team member has personally meaningful work. And final, fourth, the work that the team performs together is seen to have an impact on the world, on other people's lives. So those are the four, but it's the final discovery that turned Project Aristotle into a landmark study. Google stunningly found that psychological safety was far and away the most important of the five dynamics they found. Even if you've heard this term psychological safety before, you still might be wondering what it means. And so in a nutshell, it means having a workplace where people feel comfortable expressing and being themselves. It's a climate where employees can speak up without fear of being humiliated, ignored, or even blamed. Now, my definition is admittedly a simplification, and that's intentional because this podcast today is devoted to fleshing out all the ways leaders can master psychological safety. And I wanted you to have the necessary background before we got started. So I'm honored to say that my podcast guest is arguably the world's expert on psychological safety. Dr. Amy Emmonson is the Novartis Professor of Leadership and Management at Harvard University, where she has devoted much of her career to studying leaders who've sought to make a positive difference in the world through their work. Before becoming an academic, Amy worked as chief engineer for renowned architect and inventor Buckminster Fuller. She's the author of several books, including her newest, just released called The Fearless Organization, Creating Psychological Safety in the Workplace for Learning, Innovation, and Growth. And that's what we're going to be discussing in detail today. She's been repeatedly named to the Thinkers 50 Global Ranking of Management Thinkers Around the World, and it is a profound honor to have her join me in our discussion today. And so I give you a very warm welcome to the podcast, Amy Edmondson. I'm delighted to be here. Hi, Mark. Well, thank you. I have been looking forward to this for quite some time. And as I mentioned in your introduction, Amy, a few years ago, Google did a deep dive study for the purpose of identifying the key attributes that really characterize highly successful teams. And their surprising conclusion was that psychological safety was their most important component of all. And I think even though the research that Google had done at the time is well known by some people, it's certainly not well known by all people. So to set the stage for the rest of our conversation, tell us what it means to have a psychologically safe workplace and how that affects human behavior. You know, fundamentally, a psychologically safe workplace is one in which people believe they can bring their full self to work. And more specifically, it means they feel they can speak up and their ideas will be welcome. Their questions will be welcome. Their concerns will be welcome. Right? That it's just a place where my input is valued. Is this an uncommon thing in business? I mean, my sense of it is, but in your research, you know, how often do you see this? Well, unfortunately, I think it is uncommon and not because you know, organizations and managers of organizations have bad intentions, but I think that people often don't realize how the extent to which this is true and the extent to which it matters. 
And so I don't have a good estimate of my own of how many organizations, because I haven't done that kind of you know, population sample. But I do know that in every organization I've been in, there's varying degrees of a concern. When you say varying degrees of concern, tell me what that means. Well, so what I'm really talking about is organizations do differ, absolutely, in how much psychological safety there is. But even in organizations that are higher rather than lower on this spectrum, there is always variance across teams, across groups, across units. So when Google, for example, did its you know now widely cited study, they weren't saying, you know, how's Google doing compared to other places? They were looking at how different teams within Google were performing differently. And they found, well, they're performing differently and to a very large degree because they have different levels of psychological safety. This is something that I have found in 20 years of doing research on this topic is nearly always the case, that we go into an organization and there are pockets of psychological safety and then there are pockets of anything but. So you just sort of hinted at something. You've begun your research into psychological safety long before Google ever discovered that it really characterized great teams, right? Yes, I did. And in fact, it's a for me at least, it was a wonderful awakening to see that Google had found some of my research, which indeed New York Times article on the topic reported that they did. So they were stuck. They were puzzled. They were putting in every variable they could think of that might explain differences in team performance, you know, whether it be education levels or the diversity of the team composition or what have you. And nothing was really working in the sense of nothing was really explaining performance differences until they, as it was written about in the New York Times, discovered the concept of psychological safety in academic papers. Now, those academic papers would be mine. And the first of those papers, the one in which I came out with the original study showing these differences in team performance based on this variable, was published in 1999. So that's obviously 20 years ago. And as good as I felt about Google's discovery of the paper and use of the research, that was a long wait. Well, I think there's just the whole idea of safety I want to talk to you about in mm, a second mm, here. But, mm. you know, the idea that we want employees to be safe is not an idea that's really wildly embraced in business, right? I mean, we make people feel vulnerable. That's right. And so psychological safety is sort of exponential in my sense. It's not physical yes. safety. It's, you know, oh. how people are feeling and sensing about their work environment. So it doesn't surprise me that it took 20 years. What I think is what's more remarkable is that you've been studying it for that long. So how did you get there? Yes, right. Well, well, let me just say something quickly about safety, because in fact, there is a very strong relationship between psychological safety and worker safety, workplace safety, and even in healthcare, patient safety, for the very obvious reason that when people don't feel able to speak up with concerns or worries, let's say about a particular medication dosage or about somebody about to do something and not wearing their safety glasses in a factory setting. You know, when people are unwilling to speak up about what they know to be possibly the wrong way to do it, then workers and patients and customers are at risk. The airline industry learned this a long time ago through their analysis of black box crash data. They learned that much more often than not, when there was a fatal accident, it was a speaking up failure in the cockpit. It was people recognizing but not being able to be heard about concerns that they had and saw because of the hierarchy. You know, so there's a tight relationship there. Now, it is true that at work, in, in a sense at work, we're inherently vulnerable. So I want to be clear what I mean by psychological safety. I don't mean that this is going to be a workplace where I should be free from criticism or free from pushback or you know, where I'm always going to feel good about myself. Not at all. And I may have used the wrong term so many years ago, and it gives the wrong impression because now we're hearing a lot about safe spaces where in classrooms, for example, where you're not allowed to say anything that might even remotely hurt someone's feelings or feel threatening to them, right? So, and in a funny way, I'm talking about the opposite. I'm talking about candor. I'm talking about a shared recognition that we're all better off if we're candid and that that's not natural or normal. So we have to go out of our way to help make it happen. 
How do you feel about radical candor? We've had this discussion on this podcast a few times mm-hmm. with some of our guests. And the first thing that I'm going to just sort of respond to is this idea that we have to take new information and put it to an extreme, right? Right. The real world is business is a difficult place. You're saying right. create a safe environment where people can speak up. And if they want to speak with candor and they do it respectfully, that's in your best interest, right? Exactly. Exactly. So the very point you just made that business is a difficult place. And by the way, healthcare delivery is a difficult place. Like there's, they're difficult, you know, most, most workplaces have real challenges today. And because of that, what we don't want is for us to perform less well on the challenges we face because knowledge we could have had and could have put to good use didn't get shared. And so What's the principal reason for this? I mean, I have some questions I'm I'm excited to ask you, but what's the big reason? I think the principal reason is how we're socialized and and a little bit sort of how our brains work. It's this combination of our wiring and our socialization. We are highly tuned into others' impressions of us, and particularly in hierarchical contexts, right? It matters greatly to us, both consciously and unconsciously, that others think well of us. And there's an intuitive understanding that better safe than sorry, right? So if I have a thought in my head and it occurs to me, you might not like it, it's so much easier to remain silent than to test that little hypothesis. I'm going to come back to that. I want to dig into the radical nature of candor and mm-hmm. just pin mm-hmm. you down a little bit here and okay. say, are you asking for it to be radical? Does it need to be well, that way? You know, radical is a subjective term. In some workplaces, you know, it might be radical to say, I have an idea when the boss's boss is in the meeting. In other workplaces, the only way you could get all the way to radical is by telling, you know, the boss's boss that his baby's ugly. So, you know, I think when there isn't an objective standard for what radical means, but if radical means being slightly outside our comfort zone, then I'm all for it. You know, if radical means err on the side, you know, err on the side of of candor rather than err on the side of silence, then yes, because we can always correct. We can dial it back. We can explain what we meant. We can explain that we didn't mean to offend, but let's get it out there so we can work with it. I just think sometimes we have this sense that we need to overcompensate. So we go from no candor to radical candor, yeah. you know, and and it, that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. So I no. appreciate your c- confirming that. Yeah, I agree. But I think human beings, we have mechanisms inside us that lead us to hold back. You know, there's a intuitive appreciation also that no one ever got fired for silence. <laughs> Well, let me dig into safety for a minute because, you know, most of us, you know, listening in to you are familiar with Maslow all those years ago, 75 years ago or so. And he laid it out that safety is one of our humans' Mm -hmm. greatest needs, right? I mean, we don't move past go if we can't get safety nailed down. And yet, through the course of my career and even talking to people, talking to companies, they have this sense that. We need to manage people with fear that that gets us to where we need to go. And we conduct layoffs when we're not hitting our numbers to cut expenses quickly. And we're not really concerned about the safety of people ever. And so Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, just in the big picture, do you think that we do a lot of unwise management practices in light of everything you've learned? I think we do. And I think one of the most common unwise management practices is the reliance, whether consciously or not, on fear and even intimidation as a strategy for getting results. And given that, I think the neuroscience and the psychology is pretty clear that doesn't work. And I'll say more about that in a second. But you might wonder, well, why are people still doing this? This is the 21st century. We are in the knowledge economy. We know that people and talent are our most scarce resources. So why do managers keep doing this? And I think there's a couple of reasons. One, I think we all grew up in a sort of a cultural milieu around the world even. It starts in school or maybe even in the family, but in school, it's often a fearful place. There's fear of getting it wrong. There's fear of the teacher's wrath or the 
students laughing, laughing, mm-hmm. etc. Bosses on TV shows and in movies are often stylized as very fear-inspiring, angry people who in um, movies about the military and so on. So you have this meme around you that sort of says this is what bosses act like. In fact, I've interviewed people in manufacturing companies who have when they've seen the light, they've said, well, I thought I had to be that way. Like, I thought that's what was expected of me. You know, that's how my dad behaved. That's how my yeah. first boss behaved. And they, you know, they sort of take on that behavior. So they haven't stopped to connect, you know, their own experience, like to think about when are they at their best? You know, when have they done their best work and connect that with their own style? And they fail to recognize that, you know, when they're seen as frightening or as arbitrary or capricious, other people are simply not going to either do their best work or tell them what's really going on. Years ago, not that long ago, actually, I spoke to a very well-known large corporate insurance company, and it was their senior management team. And in the room was their national sales manager. And so I speak about the heart. And he said, you know, I really love everything you just said. He goes, but if I'm like halfway into my quarter and I'm not hitting my numbers, I'm going right to fear. What do you think about that? <laughs> it was like, did you hear anything we just talked about? I mean, you yeah, know, so yeah. even in the presence of knowledge, we're still resorting to this. Exactly. Because it's a reflex. I mean, that's what I was trying to convey. It's a reflex. And here's the problem. Every now and then, that reflex is given a faulty signal that it works. And, and let me explain what I mean by that. Fear can work for ensuring results under the following conditions. The task is simple and prescribed, meaning there's an exact process that I want you to follow. It is clearly measured. I can accurately and objectively tell that you did it. And it's done individually. But it doesn't require a lot of collaboration or back and forth or you know complexity in that way. So simple, clearly measured, individually done, fear can work. If I make you afraid enough and it doesn't take all your ingenuity to pull it off, I can frighten you into achieving those results. Of course, as soon as I turn my back, you're not going to be doing it. So it's a short-term strategy at best. And of course, as you can readily recognize, very little of the work today has those attributes. Mm -hmm. Our work is complex, collaborative, interdependent, absolutely requires ingenuity to do it well. And under those conditions, fear just doesn't do it. In fact, what we see, of course, is sometimes fear creates the illusion that the results were accomplished when, in fact, they were not. Interesting. So if you were hiring for leadership roles, what are some ways that we can identify people who, you know, I'm really deriving this from your book, that they are self-secure and unthreatened by other people's opinions and really more naturally inclined to Mm -hmm. provide psychological Mm -hmm. safety. So how do I find those people? Because not every manager is out there. So if, uh, in other words, that's really a poorly way Mm -hmm. of saying Mm -hmm. it. Not everybody has this instinct to give people psychological safety. So if organizations are trying to enhance their own culture by finding people What are they looking for? How do they discover it? I think what we're looking for, and this will sound a little abstract, but what we're looking for are people who, they're self-secure and not overly threatened by other people's opinions. But there's a risk here because, you know, when people don't care at all about what people think of them, we call them sociopaths. (laughs) But when they care too much, we call them chameleons. And we don't want either one of those, at least not in, you know, to fulfill challenging jobs that require creativity and collaboration. But what we do want, I think, is people who are aware, right? They're very aware. Uh, They're emotionally intelligent. They're aware of others' needs and they're curious about others' needs. But they have enough self-awareness also to know that their own life doesn't depend upon approval from others at all times. So we're looking for people who are willing to, despite the fact they care and we want them to care about others' impressions of them, are willing to have that in the back seat. And what do we want in the front seat? We want passion. We want curiosity. We want drive. So it's just what's primary. Is this a person who we would be excited to have on our team, who will work well with others, who will be excited about our purpose and our mission, and will have enough interpersonal skill and competence to bring their full self to work, but also be aware of and interested in others' needs? But if I submit a resume, 
and it demonstrates that everywhere I've been, mm-hmm. I get the numbers. Mm-hmm. So now the hiring manager looks at that and says, wow, look at this guy. Mm-hmm. You know, he's going to get the results no matter what. Everywhere he's gone, he's been a star. Well, they don't know that I'm not managing this way. They don't know that I'm not intimidating people and creating high turnover and a fear culture. So how do you detect that in an interview? How do you detect that in candidates in front of you? We know it's very hard. I mean, it's practically impossible to detect fraud, if you will, fraudulent impression, unless you're really, really good. But I think that if a resume looks just, you know, success after success, results after results, I think you want to ask, and I know this is a cliche, but you want to ask about, tell me about some failures. And I don't mean personal, but sometimes when you you were trying to get some result and it didn't happen and why. And, you know, if someone cannot be budged from the belief that when something failed, it's because they failed. So therefore, they don't have a story, but failed because we were fortunate enough to be pursuing something exciting and interesting in new territory. And we were wrong about what was feasible at that time in that way. If they can't sort of discern that difference or they have no experience of that difference, you may not want them. Is humility the proxy you're looking for? Well, humility and I want to call it risk-taking, but in a very particular way. So humility, because if I'm humble, which I'll come back to because I think that's probably one of the most important traits. You know, in today's world, if you're not humble, you're just not very bright, (laughs) right? Because, I mean, look around. Like, there's a lot of challenges and a lot of uncertainty and a lot of complexity, and all of us should feel a sense of wonder and humility in the face of what we're up against. But you want people who have been willing to enter contests and take tests that they couldn't necessarily win or get an A-plus on. If you haven't been willing to go for it in domains where you don't have a guaranteed success, then you're not innovating. Because if you're innovating and willing to innovate, there are going to be lots and lots of times where we're wrong, where the hypothesis is wrong. If you had somebody that, you know, sort of fits this description of it's not the humility piece that I'm going to dig into. It's the lack of Mm self-awareness, the inability to acknowledge, yeah, I can give you 20 stories of failure, (laughs) you Mm -hmm. know, right? I can tell you what I learned from them. You know, that that's where you're going. When you find somebody who just can't Mm -hmm. go there, what's the coaching? Like, what would you say to somebody in terms of here's one way you might be able to get a little greater awareness and a little bit more of the know thyself? That's a great question. I wonder if the best way to do that isn't to try to draw forth from their own experience. So let's say you have someone who is unable or unwilling to come up with a professional failure experience then you can look to a sports team you were on. I mean, not every team clearly won every championship. So what happened there? Or, you know, a family experience. We took a vacation that was just an absolute disaster or something. You know, look to something in your life because I suspect most of us have had the experience, but something that just seemed awful at the time in retrospect turns out to be a great teacher or a, a great part of your life or your character. So, I'm always looking for ways to draw insight from people's own experience. It's like what you can ask people, tell me about, and this might work here too, tell me about the very best team experience you ever had. Tell me about the worst team experience or workplace experience, either way, you ever had. And and then, you know, what was present? And typically what will come out for the worst experiences is, you know, conflict and fear and lack of motivation or something. And oftentimes your best experiences will be ones with other people accomplish something you had no idea could really be done. You know, that overcoming the odds type of experience. Interesting. Thank you. Going back to psychological safety in the big picture here, you know, one thing that I know is that we all tend to think we're better leaders than we are, (laughs) you know, (laughs) oh, I don't really need to learn that. I do that pretty Mm -hmm. well. And so I saw this Deloitte study recently that showed that 70% of us, so apply that to the people we manage, Mm -hmm. 70% of us have chosen to not speak up at a problem at work, even when we believe not addressing it could be harmful to the success of the company and even to the boss. And so 
I'd like for you to explain why you think the vast majority of us really believe speaking up represents too big of a risk. And what is the remedy? So speak to managers who might think, mm. you know, I probably do a pretty good job of that. Convince mm. me that I don't and what I really need to double down on to make sure that people are willing to speak when you know that 70% aren't. Great. Well, so let's take the first part first, which is why does this happen? Because it is not, I don't believe, the case that people are logically, consciously, rationally saying, hmm, I just weighed the odds and okay, comes out, mm, nope, not safe, right? It's quite spontaneous. It's an act of spontaneous sense-making that is partly hardwired and partly socialized that just leads us to err on the side of holding back. There's another thing we do as human beings, which is called temporal discounting, which is we way overweight the immediate event and way underweight the future event, and so I really believe this thing that I have in my mind could help the company or it could be harmful not to say it. But, hmm, you know, when is that harm going to occur? Like sometime in the future, not this minute. But if I see you about to step into a burning fire, I say something. It's obvious. It's easy. But because of that sort of imprecise and future nature of the harm, it's just spontaneous to hold back unless I'm really confident that it will be welcome. So it's overlearned. It's not conscious. It's a kind of spontaneous habit that especially manifests in hierarchies. Now, what can managers do about it? It's very simple, really. And it starts with what I think of as stage setting, which is sort of constantly being willing as a manager to name the challenges we face, you know, sort of like, wow, whether it's we've got a lot of patients on call tonight or whether it's this project has got a really tight deadline and there's lots of unknowns or this is a very demanding client and, you know, we're going to need all the good ideas you have to serve them well, right? So you're sort of constantly naming that you know challenge is real and that you know other people's thoughts and ideas are going to be mission critical to success. And then the second thing is even simpler, which is just ask questions. When managers go around asking questions, it flips the calculus, that unconscious calculus that says, mm, I'll just I'll just, you know, remain silent because I'm not sure this will be welcome is flipped. If my manager asks me a direct question, it's mighty awkward to remain mute. It's automatic permission, too. Right. It's automatic permission. It's a little stage. Yep. Here it is. And you better take it. And, you know, you might say, well, wait a minute, Amy. I mean, that's so obvious. That must be happening all the time anyway. But in fact, that's not right. In fact, when we transcribed just regular, you know, conversations in the workplace, the genuine question is still a pretty rare beast. <laughs> is that because it's just too time consuming? Like, I think I have no. a pretty good idea where I want to go. So I don't want to give people voice because it's just going to slow me down. Or what's the reason? I think that's part of it. I think there's part of a There's a belief that it will slow me down when, in fact, it could speed you up because you're getting the information you need. There's also a kind of very unconscious belief that we all have that we see reality. When I look around me, I think I see what's so? And I'm unaware of the gaps in my knowledge. Right? So I'm unaware that there's a thought in your head, right? You don't have a thought bubble above your head, like <laughs> in the cartoons. And so since I don't see a thought bubble above your head, I just assume there's nothing in there. Again, I don't do it consciously. It's just happening. So I think there's three reasons. One, we fail to recognize that we're missing something in the moment, right? Number two, it's that people often believe it'll make you look weak, because right? yeah. we're supposed to know everything, which is yeah. nonsense in a, in a knowledge-intensive, fast-changing world. And number three is the one you said, which is there's this sort of fear that'll slow us down, which it doesn't have to be the case. You know, I can ask you a crisp question and I can listen intently to your answer and then we can move on. And we, more often than not, we have saved time because we have averted something that would have otherwise taken time later. I'm really glad I asked that. That's just a great takeaway. So thank you. One of the things that I kind of bristled at in reading your book, not your book, but the stories you told mm -hmm. about companies like Volkswagen and Wells Fargo, which I'm very familiar with. Mm -hmm. Each of them had these workplace cultures that were entirely based on fear. And the CEOs themselves 
who were the ones who were creating all the harm by creating these ridiculous goals and threatening people with their jobs yeah. if they didn't achieve them, if they weren't doing it, their subordinates were doing it. And then they looked away as people were doing everything they could possibly yeah. do fraudulently to meet those goals. And then they became the scapegoats. <laughs> they let those people go when they, you know, sort of responded negatively to negative influence. So this whole system was corrupt in both of these organizations. Mm -hmm. and I'm talking about the fuel emission fraud at Volkswagen and the massive and inestimable number of fraudulent sales practices at Wells Fargo. So right. you wrote about them a lot. What can we yes. learn from them? Yes. Well, you know, I think it's possible, and I think it's important to imagine it's possible, that the goals were not understood to be ridiculous at the outset. Let's call them, just for the moment, let's call them stretch goals you know, really ambitious targets. And of course, many of us can feel quite enthusiastic about stretch goals, ambitious targets. And ambitious targets in a complex and fast-changing world are often going to be with us. However, if you're eager to have stretch goals, then you better have open ears. Because what you're saying is, here's my hypothesis, right? I think we can sell eight financial services products per customer. It's a hypothesis. No one's ever done it before. But let's go for it. Nothing wrong with that. But it needs the rest of the sentence, which is, let's go for it, but I need all of the data you have from the experiences you're having in the field. Because you're the ones out there really talking to customers and finding out what their actual appetites are. And I want to hear those data. Similarly, no problem saying, let's have a fabulous green diesel vehicle that can pass emissions tests in the U.S. Great goal. But now, engineers, I need to hear from you. How viable is it? Try it. Go for it. Do everything you can. But tell me what's working and what isn't. And then we'll just modify, right? We'll modify our goals as we learn more about the nature of the customers or the nature of the technology. So, you know, I don't believe these systems were designed at the top to encourage cheating, but I absolutely agree with you that they looked the other way and allowed magical thinking to dominate their brains. But I just want people to think if you want to avoid the headlines and the scandals of those two companies and you're ambitious and you want to have uh, stretch goals, just make sure you're doing it the way a scientist does, right? That says we want to cure this disease. I think this experiment is the next one to try, but it's an experiment. We need to hear from you. You use the expression magical thinking. So having been in financial services, I know that Wells Fargo's ambition to have eight products yeah. per customer was outside of the realm of possibilities, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, it was totally unreasonable. Right. Right. The average right. in banking is like two and a half or maybe three at best. So yeah. And they sort of had to know that people weren't playing by the rules in order to hit these numbers. And yet the truth is, right. is this has been going on for 15 years. This is not something that just happened overnight. No. And that's I think the failure to detect and failure to get curious is a blameworthy failure. And so I agree with you there. It's just tricky because when we talk about Wells Fargo, we can quickly get to agreement about a line in the sand, but we don't want listeners to come away saying no moonshots, right? because putting men on the moon and bringing them home safely was also crazy, insane goal. I think that's fantastic. But I think that what you just mentioned ahead of that remark was the important thing for me was that if you're going to set a moonshot right. and no one's ever done this and you right. start to see evidence that people are making progress, the mm -hmm. idea of spotlighting, what are you doing? How did you yes. get there, right? Yeah. What's the best practice that we can share with other people? More importantly, what not to do, right? If it's a moonshot, you're going to have more failures than successes because it's out there. It's a stretch. So we're mighty curious about everything you're learning that's not working so that we don't have to do it again, right? So yes, best practices, share your successes, but also let's advertise the failures because you know, don't approach a customer this way or don't create the circuitry that way. But did they get seduced by their own success and creating the appearance that they were doing so well that they just yes. stopped being curious? Yes. And the failure to distinguish, and especially, as you point out, at higher levels, the failure to distinguish the illusion of success from actual success 
is a very real leadership failure. All you had to do was poke at it a little bit. If you're seeing something, as you said before, that might seem a little magical, let's go find out how it works. Well, one of the things we've talked a lot about on this podcast is power and how power can lead you astray and executive Mm -hmm. ego can really take you down. It was probably like just not more than three years ago that I was having a conversation with Jim Clifton, who's the CEO of Gallup. And I don't know, at the end of the conversation, I just said, hey, I got one more thing I want to ask you. Who do you think is the most remarkable CEO in the country right now? And he goes, oh, without question, it was John Stump at Wells Fargo. Oh, no. And of course, yeah, but he could not have known, you know, all the appearances where this was one hell of a great company, right? Right. So do we get influenced by that too? When we start to look good and we start to get these results, do we sort of fall away from integrity? Is that what happens? Maybe we fall away from curiosity. We don't question enough. It looks good and it looks like a success. And by the way, he looks like appropriate CEO out of central casting or, you know, so we just don't question it. But I think as you said, if you know financial services well, you got to be a little bit questioning when you're hearing numbers like six, six and a half, if two and a half is the industry norm, right? It, okay, three and a half, sure, that's excellent performance. Maybe four is excellent performance. But at a certain point, you're failing to offer appropriate skepticism. So my two big takeaways so far from this is ask questions and be curious, which are Mm -hmm. inherently the same thing, right? True. So I want to transition here and something you wrote in your book that I thought was really kind of interesting. When you're speaking to audience, you get up and you say, so everyone, tell me, of all the failures that occur in your company, how many, like what percentage of them do you think are blameworthy? And the answer that you wrote that you get consistently is no more than like one to 4%. Right. And then you ask them, okay, so tell me how many failures in your organization are actually treated as failures and blameworthy, right? Mm-hmm. How many failures are actually treated as blameworthy? And their answer is 70 to 90%. So <laughs> what does that say to us about how we manage? I think it says we're less rational than we think. You know, we tend to think about management as this very rational practice and profession, when in fact, it's quite emotional, really, and quite automatic, or we have a lot of automatic pilot behaviors. So when I ask that question of how many failures are caused by truly blameworthy acts or events, I've prefaced it by introducing just a very quick spectrum of potential causes of failure, which ranges from, you know, somebody violated a company practice or principle that we hold dear, you know, or, or showed up for work drunk, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's nobody will disagree that that's a blameworthy act and is not good and could easily lead to a consequential failure or violated, a, you know, a limit in a financial services setting and then bad things happened, right? That's blameworthy. We should respond with quite a stern response. And, okay, so one end of the spectrum is, you know, serious violation of a company practice. And at the other end of the spectrum is a thoughtful, hypothesis-driven experiment. You know, I thought this would work. Other smart people thought it would work. And lo and behold, it failed. Nearly everyone will agree that that's a praiseworthy act, right? The act of thoughtfully developing a hypothesis, of thoughtfully trying it out, and of learning quickly that it didn't work is good data that helps the company innovate and go forward. So that's the spectrum. So when I say, you know, how often are failures that you experience, and of course, some of them are just, you know, random acts of weather and so on, but Mm -hmm. how often are the failures you experience caused by actual blameworthy events? This is why they will generally say quite low, right? Because they just don't think they have that many employees going in there to try to sabotage things. And they're right. But then I'm asking, you know, well, how do you treat the bad things that happen? And people laugh because they readily recognize, you know, our responses are out of whack, right? The responses, and they don't do it on purpose. You know, they get angry, they get frustrated, they might use uh, curse words, right? Whatever it is, it's sort of like, now it's because they're human and they say in their heart of hearts, they really wished this hadn't happened. But they fail to make a thoughtful distinction related to the cause of the failure, And that failure is one that decreases people's willingness to take 
thoughtful risks going forward. Yes. So why are we so quick to blame? And like, why is it our instinct 70 to 90% of the time? You know, this too, I think it's a combination of hardwiring and socialization, right? All of us as little kids learned it was spontaneous. It never worked, by the way, but we still spontaneously, you know, who left the playroom a mess? Oh, it was, you know, it was my brother. <laughs> it's a very spontaneous reaction is to look for someone else to blame so that you aren't the target of the ire of the authority figure. But we need to rewire ourselves and, of course, in the workplace, really socialize people to realize we're not talking about dinner party behavior. You know, we're talking about what do we do in the workplace to come up with new ideas, test new ideas, fail fast to innovate faster, and all of that good stuff that go very much against the grain of human nature, but are essential to thriving in today's world? Very good. I'm glad I asked that question too. Amy, I'd like to take a quick break from our discussion and transition into a podcast tradition that we call the heartbeat round. And to give us a more personal insight into the biggest influences of your life, I'd like to ask you a few more questions, but they really require a quick and instinctive and brief answer. So your goal is to answer each of these in a heartbeat. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay, great. Number one, the most remarkable person to ever hail from Harvard. Impossible question. Too many. It's just there's way too many amazing alumni, and Abraham Lincoln didn't go here. <laughs> I wondered if you were going to name William James, but you left it vacant, so... Yeah, he's, he's pretty great, but... Okay. The thing you love most about being an educator? Watching light bulbs turn on. One greatly undervalued leadership practice. Inquiry. Newspaper or magazine you never miss reading. My hometown newspaper. You want to know what that is? Yes. The New York Times. Oh, very good. <laughs> I thought you lived in Boston. I do. But okay. my hometown, I mean, where I'm from, where I grew up, where my parents grew up is New York City. And so I'm still, of course, drawn to the New York Times. Fantastic. There we go. That's why I ask these questions. We get a little insight into you. The most profound insight you learned from Buckminster Fuller. Dare to be naive. That is something he said. That's something he wrote in the opening pages of his tome, Synergetics. And the more you think about it, the more important it is. Dare to be naive. Wonderful. Meditation practice, yes or no? No. <laughs> yeah, you heard it in my tone. Yeah, that's okay. You No need to be shamed into meditating. A cultural value every organization should have. Compassion. Quality you most admire in other people. Courage. One book that helped shape who you'd go on to become. A book called Reasoning, Learning, and Action by Chris Argyris. Skill improvement you're working on right now. Making time to choose wisely how I spend my time. Your idea of perfect happiness. My sons being excited about life and happy to be together, finding their own purpose. The traitor behavior that derails the most leadership careers. Hubris. Best money you ever spent. Buying a house, a summer house, where my dad could have his own wing and live with us in his later years. Mm. And my sister could also come and stay with us during that time. Lovely. The lesson you wish you'd learned much earlier in life. I am enough. Oh, here, here. Thank you so very much, Amy. That sort of left me breathless hearing that. It's a common refrain for many of us. Still trying to learn it, but... I'm ashamed that I still feel it too. But I think our audience will resonate with that. So thank you so very much. In fact, speaking of our listeners, I hear more about these questions from the heartbeat round than just about anything else that we do here. So thank you for that. It was very inspirational. And once again, thank you. And let's get back to our questions, the big ones. Great. You mentioned that in your book, from your observation, that there are actually many companies that have taken psychological safety very seriously mm -hmm. and are trying to create, in your language, the language of your book, a fearless organization. So can you tell us about some of these and really specifically what they're doing and how they've built it into their culture? Well, you know, I think a lot of companies are starting this journey. It's just more and more I'm getting so many emails, I'm getting so many calls. People are, are sort of launching on this journey. I think there's only a handful that are far along this journey. Some that, we, you know, well before I started talking about this 
understood intuitively mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, that this is, you know, we, we need to be a creative company, so this is how we're going to have to be, whether that would be a Pixar or a, an IDEO or um, any number of places. But but I think Google, I mean, I, I hate to come back around to Google, but it's such a good example because they were systematic and thoughtful. Like they said, we want to know, you know, what's present when our when our people and our teams are thriving and, you know, doing great work and enjoying their work. And they kind of discovered, you know, stumbled into this idea of psychological safety. And having stumbled into it, they then set about trying to find ways to keep building it and spread it, you know, from the pockets that had it to the pockets that didn't. And one of the things they did, which I love, is create something they call the G to G network, you know, G for Googlers, Googlers, um, how they refer to themselves, the Googlers to Googlers network. And these are people who are, you know, employees at Google who essentially volunteer to spend some portion of their time coaching and helping and meeting with teams to help them with psychological safety and other things that they might be working on. The reason I like that model is that they share the experience. They know you know, they're not consultants coming in from the outside. They know what it's like to work here. They know what matters around here. But they're willing to go in and meet with teams who aren't in their same domain. And they will ask them questions and do some coaching and try to help leaders develop some of these skills. In other settings, Intermountain Healthcare, Children's Hospital of Minneapolis, where I've observed this journey over time, what is always the case is that there is, is intentionality at or near the top. We need to make sure we've got a climate where people are able to speak up. And then they recognize that this isn't something you do by fiat. And it's not something you do. It's not an end in itself. Our goal isn't to become psychologically safe. Our goal is to do great work. But I think you start with an emphasis on what's the goal? What's the purpose? What's the nature of the work we do? What's it going to take to be spectacular? And help people in the different parts of the organization and the different work they do recognize that it's not going to be possible to be spectacular without being open, without being brave, without sort of jumping in and rolling up their sleeves. Is the common denominator that intentionality you just described thriving, meaning is that what their intention is? In other words, true north is if we can have people yes. feel thriving, then that's going to be good for the organization. Yes, I think so. That success comes from two things, you know, clarity, people being clear about the goal, the mission, the work, and being able to do their best work. And most of the time, most of us, when we are in a situation where we're clear about the goal, we care about it, we think it matters, and we're in a situation where we're able to do our best work, that feels pretty good. But I think that's sort of a binary thing in business. It's either we really instinctively want people to be thriving or we don't care, mm-hmm. right? But if we don't care, we don't care at our peril. Tell me why, because that's kind of where I wanted to go. Well, unless... Unless the work that you want people to do doesn't really require, you know, think about it this way. Let's say there's a spectrum of scoring my performance from one to 10, you know, and one is I'm so bad I get fired at the end of the week. And 10 is I'm so good, you just have never had an employee that good before. And you can always ask the thought question of like, where can I settle in and not get fired? And in most places, it's, you know, somewhere around five. Mm Mm-hmm. And so where I'm really going to settle in, since I kind of get it, I know how the game is played in this binary universe where some people just don't care. What I'm going to do as an employee is I'm going to settle in at six. I need that cushion, right? I don't want to be playing it risky around here. So I settle in at six and I'm perfectly, I'm fine. I do my six level performance. You're fine with me too. You don't fire me. You don't think I'm fantastic, but you think I'm pretty good. I'm pulling my weight around here. If you want six, that's fine. You can then be in the other camp, right? But if you actually want eight, nine, ten. You want the extra four. Mm -hmm. And that can only be given voluntarily. And as soon as you recognize that, right, that you've got to care about the thriving if you want the eight, nine, ten. 
because that's where it comes from. Amen, sister. Uh, uh, <laughs> I mean, seriously, that's, that's really what I wanted to hear you say. I mean, sometimes oh, well, it's just that we all need validation for these <laughs> right. ideas, right? Right. But, yes. you know, and it's simple math. If you're okay with six, that's what you're going to get because right. the extra four is voluntary. If your business model can thrive with six, then okay, fine. But if there's a competitor across the street who's got the eight, nine, ten, I think you're not going to last as long as you will want. So I think you've probably given some thought to this question in your career. <laughs> Tell me the skills and qualities that you think are the most essential to leadership success today. Not perhaps the, you know, setting good goals or mm -hmm. those mm -hmm. kinds of things, but yeah. what separates the really great leaders today? I think three things, and they're not unrelated, but the first one is passion or drive, you know, that there's something you care enough about that you're willing to do the hard work of leadership. And the second is humility, which we already talked about, but it's that recognition that you can't do it alone, that you don't have a perfect formula, that it's going to be partly you, but your real job as a leader is to harness the efforts of others to achieve this greatness that you want achieved. And that humility ought to lead directly to the third thing, which I've also mentioned before, which is curiosity. So, you know, passion, humility, and curiosity, those are traits of leadership. Of course, there are many managerial skills that people need to have as well, but I think those are separators with real leadership success today. That's what I was looking for. By the way, the curiosity comes up very, very often as a unique differential for CEOs, but specifically for all leaders, that having curiosity is a profoundly mm. impactful, obviously it's expansive, but this is a great passion yes. and drive, humility and curiosity. So I'm very glad I asked that question. And I want to uh, make sure you get back to your students yes. but before I let you go. We have a tradition on the podcast where I just turn over the floor to our guest and with the ambition of saying, what didn't we talk about? What didn't we cover that relates specifically mm. to psychological mm. safety that you want this audience thinking about once we're done here? Well, I think we've covered a lot, but I will say that leadership, you know, it's an intensely creative thing to be a leader. And I think we think of leadership often as, you know, action and take the hill, but it's the art of pushing the pause button in a busy world to reconnect yourself and others with the goal, with the purpose that we want to achieve and the values we hold dear. And by the way, the goals we want to achieve, like, you know, the green diesel and the 8.0 cross sell, 8.0 cross sell are often in tension with the values we hold dear. And so we've got to confront that tension thoughtfully and deliberately and then choose the next steps deliberately and thoughtfully. Our instincts are often in our way, right? As human beings, our instincts are often counterproductive. So the art of leadership is that art of pushing the pause button and reconnecting with what really matters. Amy Emerson, it is a real honor, true honor to have you on. I'm so grateful you did this and you offered such wonderful insights. Thank you so very much. On behalf of me and everyone that's listening, our entire audience, thank you so very, very much. You're so very welcome. Best to you. You too. Before we go, I want to say thanks to all of you who've introduced our podcast to your friends, colleagues, and even your employees. Not to mention those of you who thoughtfully shared episode links of the podcast on social media. We know there are many podcasts out there for you to choose from, and having a growing audience is really the only indicator that we use to determine whether you find them useful, informative, and worthwhile. We simply cannot succeed without you and your referrals, so thank you. And as always, speaking of thanks, I want to acknowledge my wonderful supporting team, including two dear friends, Susan DeRoche and Ken Boynton, in addition to my Seattle-based webmaster, Randy Yunt, and incredible sound engineer and producer, Eric Oz. And as always, I leave you with the same final thought. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley, thanking you for listening in and signing off for now. Mm -hmm.